Tom, how are you doing today? Good. I figured it out. <laughs> well, thanks for uh, spending some time today. And um, a couple things I wanted to do is, um, one is, I'm aware, obviously, of your organization, Global Financial Integrity, which I believe has been in uh, place over 15 years. Uh, but I'd like a sense of our AML community to understand what you folks do. You're a think tank, but you do advocacy, and you work, obviously, as your name suggests, on a global basis, but give us a sense of the various missions of uh, GFI. Sure. Yes. All, all of that is, is correct. We are a think tank. Uh, we do a lot of research on uh, illicit financial flows, both uh, globally, regionally, specific countries, uh, depending on uh, what we're looking at in a particular year. Um, uh, we do a lot of work with anti-money laundering, uh, trade misinvoicing, uh, illicit trade around the world. The, the numbers for these uh, issues is just tremendous. I think it's $2 trillion in illicit trade a year, $900 billion in trade misinvoicing each year. Um, uh, and so we do the research, and based on that research, we have fact-based advocacy, and we advocate uh, to various governments, uh, multilateral institutions, whether it be um, uh, WTO, WCO, FATF, OECD, and on and on. Um, we engage uh, in the numerous summits uh, that occur each year, trying to advocate to the U.S. government to take particular positions, to push particular uh, remedies we see as uh, very important to addressing the underlying uh, issues that facilitate um, illicit financial flow, right. that facilitate illicit trade, and that's opacity in the financial system of, of many sorts. Yeah, you know, so, you know, we use a lot of words in our community and transparency and the need for transparency is certainly something we all hear quite a bit. Give us a sense of what you believe transparency is, and, and I'll just I'll just preface it by saying, uh, to understand where the funds are going, people have to document, rec record, investigate. So if you don't have access to information, obviously you're unable to stem the illicit flows. But transparency, I'm assuming, takes on a number of different uh, areas of focus. But when you guys talk about transparency. What are some of the things that you're focused on? Well, the thing that first comes to mind, of course, is uh, beneficial ownership transparency. That is who actually owns uh, the companies that are they're moving some of this money around the globe. Um, as I'm sure you and many of your listeners know, uh, in the most recent uh, National Defense Authorization Act, um, there was a Corporate Transparency Act, which created uh, the requirement that uh, beneficial ownership registries are created throughout the U.S. Uh, uh, to require uh, any new company that's being established, that the beneficial owners, the people actually operating and running and benefiting from the company, provide some very basic 
information, um, name, address, date of birth, and an ID, a license or a, or a passport, say. Very, very basic uh, information just to give um, uh, the most minimal amount of information on who actually controls these companies and therefore if law enforcement, um, if the IRS um, needs to follow up, is doing an investigation, they can contact the people related to these companies. Um, there's, we're still a year away before anything gets uh, implemented, right. um, uh, but it is a major uh, step towards uh, transparency. Up until now, um, uh, anonymous shell companies were legal entities through which a lot of illegal activity could occur. So that's one type of uh, transparency. Another type of transparency where we've begun to advocate for is uh, trade transparency. Uh, right. um, um, as I said earlier, the amount of illicit trade and misinvoicing of, of goods is massive. Um, we are promoting the idea now that if you are a company trading internationally, you should have a legal entity identifier number. Uh, and if you don't have one, if you can't put one on an invoice, uh, you can't trade internationally. We have to know who these companies are, who's running them, uh, for one. And from the shipping side, if you own a ship, if you own a company that owns a number of ships that transport goods internationally, who are you? There should be a beneficial ownership registry for ship ownership. Um, and so, again, this, there, there's numerous ways to insert transparency uh, into the financial system to be able to help law enforcement, tax authorities, and so on address the global ills that are facilitated by uh, this opacity that we see around the globe. You know, um... It's a global issue, as you just uh, indicated, whether it's uh, shipping companies or whether it's companies created in, uh, in Delaware, Nevada, Montana, and our country. What's the opposite? What has been the opposition to more transparency? You know, obviously, um, the U.S. got rightly criticized for having poor laws and regs in this space. Uh, as far back from FATF as, uh, I think, 2004, 2006, whenever the first or whether that uh, mutual evaluation occurred. And it took all this time to get to where we were in the National Defense Authorization Act. But that came even after the CDD rule, which was sort of, I always thought, half a loaf because you can get the banks to collect information, but the information isn't complete. Then it's it's not valueless, but it's not that helpful. What has been the... Uh, illegitimate and legitimate arguments against doing any of this, whether in our country or globally? What, what have been the, what have the critics said uh, to your advocacy on this, which, like I said, obviously makes a ton of sense, but it's taken a while to get some of these changes. Yeah, there's been a couple of things. Um, um, one is that there's, um, especially in the United States, Americans put a tremendous amount of value on privacy um, in, in um, certainly in our, um, our tax filings uh, each year. Um, the IRS um, uh, guards personal tax information um, uh, extremely well. And 
uh, that's not necessarily the case around the world. Uh, for instance, I know that in Norway, um, any Norwegian citizen can ask for the tax return of any other Norwegian citizen. Now, really? wow. do, do we get to that point? No, I, I would not ask yeah. it. But, um, but there is this sort of in our American DNA, um, uh, there is this real uh, craving for privacy. And so that's always been one of the pushbacks. You know, it's none of your business that I own this LLC. I own this shell company. Uh, you know, um, uh, so that's 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 one thing. Um, another has been a fear of uh, uh, companies, especially small companies, uh, being burdened with um, too much regulation, too much reporting requirements. Um, and um, in certain instances, um, they have a point. Um, that, uh, for, especially for very small companies, small LLCs, they just don't have the capacity to reply to a lot of um, government regulation reporting requirements. Um, but that's not the case uh, here. Um, as I said, all this um, Corporate Transparency Act is looking for is four very simple right. basic pieces of information. And uh, it's less than what is required for anybody to get a library card anywhere in the United States. Uh, far more personal information is needed um, uh, to get a library card. And in one state, I think it's Kentucky, um, requires biometric information. It's, it's really quite astonishing right. what they require to get a library card. Uh, and it's never been anywhere near that requirement to create a company uh, through which a lot of damage uh, could be done, as we've seen in a whole host of uh, media reports on how shell companies have been abused over the years. Yeah, it's funny. Uh, I was actually going to bring that up. One of the best things, and you guys have done a lot of really good reports, but one of the most, to me, influential and pretty short reports that you did was the library card project that you released in March of 2019. And, and obviously, to your point, you found and you back it up with facts, as you've said, uh, that it's harder to get a library card than to create a company, which is in anybody's estimation insane. And I think uh, um, I always felt in, in an advocacy area, if you can do an elevator conversation to make your case, you can win your case. And this certainly is one of that and I, one of those. And I think that that's um, you know, that that's exactly the, the issue that, you know, I've been in the in and out of the financial sector for a long time. One of the uh, things that we used to always argue was uh, burden, right? Regulatory burden. Right. A lot of it was just not accurate. So I think this notion that this is going to impact uh, small businesses in, in such a way as to prevent them from doing their work, I think is, is a hard one to, to prove. That's why I think the registry does have that appeal of being a place where or, or a, a project or a requirement that really could maybe not solve everything, but certainly make transparency much, much easier. And to your point, it's going to take a while to go through the regulations and everything else. But I'm with you. I think this is sorely needed. Where do we stand as a country, just just high level with all the other countries that you follow in terms of transparencies regarding uh, incorporation after after this, the registry becomes successful, it gets used. Will we be pretty close 
to the mean or, 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 or are there countries that do even more? I think we'd be, we, we, we'd be in very good standing at that point. Um, uh, in the NDAA, I mentioned earlier, they also had whistleblower protections included in that. Right. That, that was another shortfall that um, FATF had found of the U.S. Um, approach to this in the past. So that's that box has been checked. And I, I would be quick to say neither of these, uh, the beneficial ownership or the, or the um, uh, whistleblower protections are perfect. Um, there's always room for improvement, but they are light years ahead of where we've been in the past. So I think in general, uh, we're doing a very good job. You know, the whole um, Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, uh, right. we, we, we've been a leader, global leader on that for decades. Um, so it shows that with American leadership, a lot of positive good can occur around the globe. Many countries have based their FCPA um, uh, laws on ours. Um, it's become the global standard. Um, so I think uh, in general, um, we've done a lot of good on this point. Let, let me go to uh, just corruption in general. One of the things that um, a lot of these laws and regulations have in common is the ability is to deal with preventing and investigating and detecting corruption. And corruption obviously is a global problem. From all the research that GFI does, um, you've shown, I think, you've shown metrics on how it how it harms individual countries in the globe. Give us a, a high level sense of the global problem of corruption and how, and how you would define corruption, corruption, whether it's corruption in a corporate sense or corruption in a political sense. Yeah, I think I, I think you do have to separate it out uh, between political and and corporate. They're both corrupt act activities. Um, you know, when we talk about corruption in a political sense, we're not talking about the petty corruption, you know, pay a little bit of a bribe to get your driver's license. We're talking about the grand corruption, the, um, uh, the uh, government minister who's uh, diverting funds from his budget into private offshore accounts. That's just a, a classic um, example of, of what we're talking about. Um, and the list of um, uh, government officials who have been ousted because of their corruption over the years is quite long. Uh, the names are familiar, um, Marcos and, right. and on and on. Um, so that's certainly one. And so what, what does that grand corruption do? It rots the institutions of government from the top. Uh, and a lot of lower level, mid, lower level government officials see that the top of the government is corrupt. They not, have no hesitancy to be corrupt themselves. So we, you know, we do a lot of work with uh, customs departments mm -hmm. around the globe. We've created a uh, cloud-based database uh, so customs departments can detect trade misinvoicing as it happens. Um, from numerous studies, uh, it's well known the customs departments are some of the most corrupt departments within government. Right. Uh, it's so easy uh, to hide the corruption. It's so easy to take a payment on the side. Um, the flow 
the, the massive flow of trade being pushed through ports every day, the speed of it, and the lack of technical capability to identify when it's not priced correctly um, just facilitates or covers up um, the corruption that does take place. So, but when, when, when uh, customs officials see that the top of the pyramid is corrupt, uh, they have less likelihood to uh, curtail their own activities. And that just oozes out into society. Then the society has no faith in the government. They have no faith in um, government institutions that they're going to do the things that they should be doing to help the citizens of that country. So it's very, uh, it's, uh, very corrosive uh, within a society. And that just um, uh, connects to uh, the corporate corruption uh, that happens in many of these places. Um, when corporations see that uh, they can get a leg up on a contract uh, because the people at the top, the people making the decisions at ministerial level, um, um, they have uh, certainly an incentive uh, right. to color outside the lines. Uh, and so that's uh, one, one leads to another. Um, and so what, what's lacking in many, many places is the, is the political will to change these things. Um, you know, Transparency International's Corruption Perception Index has been out since the mid-90s. Right. Um, there has been little movement uh, of governments uh, out of uh, the danger area into areas where uh, it's indicated that they've made great progress. So despite the work that TI has put, been put in over the years and the light that they have shown on numerous governments around the world, um, there hasn't been a massive amount of improvement for many of those governments, which is uh, um, sort of a sad uh, <laughs> A sad story, given how many people are hurt by it every day. Right. You know, I've done some interviews with uh, law enforcement in the course of the past year uh, about the pandemic's impact on um, fraud and crime against individuals or companies. I assume the same has been problematic in terms of corruption. I mean, some of it you could sort of put in the same bucket, I guess, because if you're if you're diverting funds that should go to vaccines or diverting funds that should go to legitimate uh, PPP uh, products and pocketing the money, that's a problem. But have you, has GFI seen an increase um, in corruption or corrupt activities that it can be connected to uh, using the pandemic as a, as a rationale, not a rationale, but as an excuse to pocket money? Um, not that we've studied it ourselves. Okay. Of course, there's, there have been numerous media reports that that's a fact. It's taking place in many, many countries around the world. Many governments have fast-tracked uh, PPE uh, equipment to enable the country to uh, fast, I should say, fast-track the importation right. of PPE equipment to help the country's response uh, to the pandemic. Again, as I said earlier, the speed through which uh, these goods are pushed through the port only enables um, um, uh, bribery, uh, price gouging, uh, and so forth. And so, yes, we, we, we've seen it around the globe that this has been a real problem. And it's that very type 
of activity that we hope to address in our trade integrity uh, promotion coming up this year in trying to get governments and international institutions to understand that the more transparency, the more light you show on these international trade transactions, the better able governments are going to be to um, address uh, illicit trade, address price gouging, and address corruption when it happens. Some of the, the, the misinvoicing that you talk about, uh, obviously, trade-based money laundering is a, is a major problem. Uh, what's your sense of the state of training in this space? Um, obviously, it's necessary, and not just in the U.S., but globally. Uh, it, it doesn't seem, correct me if I'm wrong, you might assist someone that's doing it, but you, GFI itself doesn't do training. But are there organizations out there that you either partner with or recommend that provide this training to compliance and analysts and, and those sorts of folks? Uh, we, we are in the process of talking to one organization that we may be partnering with to do uh, just that. Okay. Uh, um, so we're, we're certainly looking down the line at, at that. There are organizations, very good organizations um, that do that. It's, it's critically important. Um, um, you know, a lot of most uh, governments don't do anti-money laundering well. Right. It's even more difficult to do uh, to address trade-based money laundering. It's far more difficult to identify it and and to stop it. So it's a it's a it's a, a real acute problem within an already very difficult problem. So it's an area there that uh, many more governments are going to have to spend a lot more time looking at. You mentioned at the front end of the conversation about the um, the AML reform provisions in the NDAA, and obviously the specific one is the corporate transparency provisions. Uh, but I know because you were kind enough to have me uh, listen in on a couple of your of your meetings. But I know your guys are working on uh, a policy piece, which I'm not going to ask you to disclose yet uh, on the reform. But let me just ask you a ballpark question. On AML reform, I get the sense that if things are done efficiently, uh, studies become strategies, regulations become finalized in, a, in a, a proper period of time. This has the potential of being the most dramatic change to the infrastructure really since the Patriot Act. Um, what's your overall feeling about reform? We'll obviously look carefully at your policy brief when it comes out, but just in general, what's your take on what happened, because they clearly tackled a lot of issues. There's no one can uh, accuse the House and Senate, the staff and others of, of not trying to tackle, you know, everything that impacts uh, AML and financial crime. Uh, but that's a big ask. So what was your what's your takeaway? And I know some of this needs to still occur. So you'll maybe have a final view later on. But initially, what's what been your takeaway since this past in late December? No, I think I'd agree with that. I think what um, was included in the NDAA in December was uh, excellent. There's lots of good um, uh, things in here. Uh, we were just talking about trade-based money laundering. They're looking for a study on trade-based money laundering and, and, and how does the government attack that problem. It's unclear um, uh, that the government has a good strategy to attack trade-based money laundering. Um, we mentioned uh, whistleblower protections. Uh, there are 
um, uh, provisions in there to uh, create uh, liaisons in FinCEN, both domestically right. and globally, to um, um, brainstorm, share information. How do we do this better? I think all these things are excellent. If you don't get the little things right, you're not going to get the big things right. And I think what what came out of the NDAA was a lot of really good granular things that needed to be addressed. How does FinCEN improve its collaboration with financial institutions? Um, from most of the people, most of the AML experts I've talked to in government, in the financial industry, um, it, there's a pretty strong consensus that that is not happening well and that it's essentially two different organizations, two different uh, groups of experts speaking different languages. Uh, the banks don't get what FinCEN does, and FinCEN doesn't really get what banks do. Right. Um, and so there needs to be uh, a better um, collaborative process. How do you lower the temperature, get in a situation where, you know, we're not accusing you of anything. We're trying to figure out how you do it. And the banks are saying we've got to figure out how, how you want what you want. What does a good SAR look like? Um, how have we done as financial institutions in the past uh, in SARS? How do we improve it? It's that conversation that doesn't appear to have taken place over the last 5, 10, 15 years that needs to take place. And we know from other countries, uh, Austrac and Australia, uh, UK and Hong Kong tend to do this pretty well. Um, there are models out there that while we might not um, uh, replicate exactly, they are sort of a best practice. What do they do? What can we take from that that would work in our context? Um, I think we as a government, as a, uh, a, as a government organization trying to address uh, AML, uh, really needs to crowdsource this. Of course, there's deep decades worth of experience in FinCEN and in other uh, law enforcement institutions, but how do we get better at what we need to do? How does country A do it? How does country B do it? Um, and uh, from doing that, going through that process, I think we'll get better at, better at it as a government. Well, Tom, I want to thank you for taking time today. It's Global Financial Integrity, an advocacy think tank organization, uh, as we've heard, does research, reports, and advocacy uh, Tom, any any last uh, last thoughts? No, I, I think I thank you very much, John, for the opportunity. I think um, we're really looking forward to getting our uh, briefing paper out on FinCEN in the coming weeks, and really look forward to engaging with those in government uh, and in Congress who uh, would like to help make the agency stronger and help the government do a uh, more effective job at AML. Well, we may ask you to jump on again later when your policy brief comes out, but we'll make sure people are looking forward to looking for that uh, in the next uh, couple of weeks. Thanks again, Tom, and uh, stay safe. Thank you, John. You too.